welcome back to another Goodwood Carpool. I'm Ed Foster and I'm the Deputy Head of Motorsport Content here at Goodwood. Now some of you will have seen the last Goodwood Carpool with Tiffany Dell and I'm out and about again because I've heard that there were quite a few interesting people staying at the Goodwood Hotel last night. So let's have a quick look and see who's there, who needs a lift and where they'd like to go. Maybe we'll find someone interesting. Just coming up to the Goodwood Hotel now, and oh, straight in there, Dario Franchitti. Look at that, that's not bad. With his thumb out. Perfect. Hello, Dario. This is very nice, Ed. Oh, how are you doing? All right, yeah. Yeah, good. Good Welcome. to see you. Thank you. Can I take you somewhere? Take me to the circuit if you don't yeah. mind. If you've got a bit, bit of time to spare, we can do a, do a bit of a loop. Yeah. If you want. Quiet day, so lovely yeah. sunny day here at Goodwood, so it's all be... Yeah. It's very typical October weather this, apparently. Down here it is, I'm not so sure it is in Scotland. But yeah. Probably not. Um, so we should be able to get up the hill climb. You've how, how many times have you been up the hill climb? I don't know. Tens? Hundreds? Not that many. Tens. Definitely yeah. in the tens. Um, I'm trying to think of... Because you've been up in... A lot, obviously, a load of different cars. I think the first time I went up and it was in a Lotus 25. It's not a bad car to start with, is it? Um, the poor owner, though, when I sort of I sat in it, I was all strapped in, and he um, sort of waved him over, and he said, um, he said, "Thanks for letting me drive your car." I said, oh, "No problem." I said, Which way does the hill go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When when you did that with the because we were about to go over the start finish line, yeah, um, but the yard with the, of bricks. With the in, indie bricks, yeah. Um, so, well, for those that don't know, um, the Duke of Richmond actually brought them back from Indy, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the Indianapolis obviously is referred to as the Brickyard um, because it used to be completely bricks. Um, and then bit by bit, the bricks went away because they weren't terribly safe. Um, and they, well, they, they, they um, put tarmac over the top of it. And now the only bit that's left is actually the, there's a small strip very much like here at Goodwood at the start finish. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a nice little touch. Which um, you can hear when you go over it. If you when you're watching from yeah. the outside, you could hear it. When I drove there in the Indy car, I never felt the bricks once. Really? Because I think I was so terrified of it <laughs> going to turn one every time. It's quite the thing is it's quite a difficult thing because you you go out and there's cold tires, a slippery bit of tarmac, and then the nightmare corner that is Mulcum up here. <sighs> yeah. It's it's, it's a slightly unforgiving job to to do, isn't it? No, it really is, and you're generally in a car, lucky enough and fortunate enough to be in a car that's, you know, sometimes priceless. And so you come up here, as we come to Malcolm just now, and it's a lot tighter with those bales and the grandstands yeah, yeah. and everything, and then you, uh, you just got to be very, very careful with it. But the, the cars I've driven here, I was always demonstrating a car. I was yeah. never about going for a time or proving how quick I was or any of that stuff. It was just about enjoying the car. And, um, and and allowing you know the, the car to be demonstrated so the fans could maybe you know, could appreciate the car. Um, I did recently did some stuff up here with a DB4 GT um, for Goodwood Classic Cars, I and mean, there was no there's nobody here. There was no bales. There was no nothing. There were yeah. marshals on every entry to make sure that the, the hill was secure. And I just blew up and down the hill all day in this DB4 GT, and it was that's, one of the, that's the life, isn't it? It was one of the more fun days <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> so, what, what, do you, what, what are the sort of the highlights that you've driven up here? Because there the must be. I'm thinking, is it is, there, is, is it mostly Clark machinery? Yeah, the, I drove a DTM car, 2005 DTM car. Um, 
which was actually the first time I'd driven something since my my accident, um, and I really enjoyed driving that. Yeah, giving it some. The the Jim Clark stuff to drive up here was has been a lot of fun. Um, I think one of my highlights though was actually was it in the DTM car? No, it was in something else. And Paul Stewart was in front of me in a Mercedes. The Tripoli car. What was the Tripoli designation? W. Yeah. Anyway, okay. you're testing me now. Yeah, I'm <laughs> testing myself. But we, I had my iPhone out on the way down, yeah. and I was videoing him, and we, he did a burnout. Which if Mercedes are watching this, sorry. Uh, it was, it was a, a sort of mental burnout. It wasn't actually a physical one. That exactly. <laughs> it was. Um, yeah. But it was. That was one of my. I think the highlights of just, just having fun driving Nick Mason's 250 GTO up the hill. Yeah, that's not bad. So. I'm not sure whether this gate is actually open. So your chauffeur-driven um, journey to the circuit has probably got off to a really bad start. So I'm going to have to reverse all the way down here. We'll soon see. But I was so I wanted to ask you about um, natural talent today. Um, partly because uh, you went out and you won your first race, first car race, first, yeah, yeah. car race. But yeah, first car race. Now I've. Um, I've done, obviously, oh, yeah, it is closed. We'll be doing a bit of reversing. Ah, we can do a UE. <laughs> Man, your yeah. skills can do a UE. Um, so, so, with, um, I went out my first race, and I thought I was going to be the next Schumacher. And within a few laps, I was lapped by pretty much everyone. <laughs> um, and there is obviously a huge, huge thing with natural talent. Um, but a lot of it's practice. Mm-hmm. So, how, why were you so good? It runs in the family, but what was, you know, how, how did you know what to do? I don't know. I had a, a little go-kart um, when I was three, I think. I've actually, I've got it again because mum and dad found it for my 40th birthday and dad restored it. So it's sitting at, uh, it's sitting at home in the, uh, in the I Love Me room, which right. is all my, all my memorabilia. <laughs> um, Excellent name. <laughs> So I was used to driving that, and then I went and rode motorbikes for a while, and I was absolutely terrible at it. I just had no, you know, doing motocross, and I was crap. Yeah. It didn't feel natural at all. And even now, when I ride a bike, it's not the, <laughs> I'm not the best. I'm no John McGuinness, put it that way. Um, that's that's fair enough. I mean, that's that's quite a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, trust me, I'm the furthest. If John's at one end of the spectrum, I'm way at the other. Um, and I got in a cart when I was ten up at Lark Hall, which was the local circuit, and I just felt, I don't know, it just felt natural to do it and to slide the thing around and to go quickly and, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's, the amount, you know, obviously throughout your career you learn, you know, you're always learning, I think you've always sort of said that, that you, mm. know, you can always learn more, but to go straight in and do something and to be that good at it is, is, an, is an odd... It's an old thing, isn't well, it? When I'm saying that good, it was you know it was my first day in a car. And how first on, race how was, many entries were there? Um, there was more than one, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> but well, then, as you progress up the ranks, it becomes fairly obvious that there's people with as much talent as you've got. I certainly found that, and it was then. It, then it became more about hard work and dedication and, and, and focusing on it and preparation and all those types of stuff. That make it sound a little bit boring, but then, then the the, the, sort of the desire to do it and to the risk comes in, and yeah. um, and all that happens as you kind of become more successful, I think, and you maybe get more of the trappings of it. And how much do you actually really want to do it? Yeah. Um, and I think I went through a stage of I felt my sort of motivation going away a wee bit as I maybe enjoyed the 
the, the sort of the, the, the trappings of it all, um, which coincided with some pretty big accidents. Actually, mm. the, the accidents yeah. happened, so my mo- motivation went away as well. But then, towards the end of my career, I really felt that desire, motivation coming back because I realised that it was. Um, I could feel I was getting close to the end of of my my sort of time as a racing driver. Um, yeah. I didn't expect it to end quite as quickly as it did, but um, yeah. So that was. Um, it's a combination of all those things. Yeah, I'd, I'm not sure if you've ever come across four horses at Milken before. No, that was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> I think some yeah. people have. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Loy springs to mind yeah. in that Nissan when he went up and pressed yeah. the brakes. And um, so, I'd, yeah, because then you went on, you won um, the Formula Vauxhall Junior Championship at your first attempt, um, and it, it was about then that Jackie Stewart, because um, you did a test in a Formula Vauxhall. And Jackie wanted a report on it, didn't he? Mm. So, what was the story there? How did um, how did that all come about? So, yeah, the Vauxhall Junior season. I was racing for David Leslie, um, and you know, mum and dad. Dad remortgaged the house, then told my mum, and it was sort of friends putting money in here and there. David Leslie being very understanding with the payments, all that sort of stuff. Um, and funnily enough, I was talking to David Cuff, who was my teammate in that Vauxhall Junior season. I was talking to him two days ago, and. We were talking, I sent him some picture I'd found of him and I as sort of kids basically and he said he made some joke about you know, me winning the championship and I said you know you have to understand David I was desperate yeah. and I really was It was that was my only shot and I really felt that was my only shot and Jackie at the end of that season he'd seen me race at a couple of races um, because we we were a support race to Formula 3 where DC was and Rubens were fighting out for the championship um, I went and did this test. Uh, Graham Taylor was the engineer. Um, Graham went on to work with with Arrows, with all, all Audi and, and Lamar, all kinds of great stuff. And he's still a great pal. But he was in charge of the test, and he told me afterwards, years afterwards, um, he showed me the notebook, and it said something like, "Sign, sign this kid now." Really? Uh, which I thought was very nice of him. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and that was it. And Jackie went to all the Scottish companies as only Jackie can. Um, and found the money and he, uh, I had to go meet him at the Christmas party first time I'd met him and I went and put my uh, I think it was my BHS um, 40 quid suit on <laughs> double breasted of course um, BHS no longer around no so these are more people like you buying suits from that's, them. that's it. why and I uh, <laughs> and I went to, to see Jackie and, and uh, he about two weeks later he phoned me and said right I found the money you, you drive the car um, and off we went and that was the start of a, you know, a three year relationship and, and there was a sort of a future earnings deal there but without yeah. without Jackie having that faith and without you know, guys like Graham and in the team and sort of seeing maybe something there um, that would never have happened but he's but it was you know obviously there was there was the kind of the, the, the lending deal but you know he, he didn't get the interest on that or anything like that it was just a pay you back I think wasn't it which was yeah um, you know, which is when actually, when you think about it, taking a punt on something like that, you might never get your money back. No, there was a definite punt. Yeah. Um, from from Jackie because it, was, it took a lot of effort to, to to do what he did, and you know, he was the one guy and that could go into these companies in Scotland, whether it was Tunnox, whether it was Bank of Scotland at the time, um, Marshalls, whoever it was, he was able to go in there and um, and and sort of be, be the front man and. Um, it wasn't like he was Jackie 
was not getting rich out of Paul Stewart yeah. racing I'll tell you that and yeah. obviously it became Stewart Grand Prix and that, that worked out very well financially um, but you know he was Without Jackie, I wouldn't be here. And then there's a, a good few of us, I think, could say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, for for young drivers now, and certainly young Scottish drivers, there's nobody yeah, doing there's no that, like him. and nobody nobody like him. Yeah, there's nobody can do it. Yeah. But that was also it was around that time that you could have been called something totally different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what right. did you What did you tell everyone? <laughs> well, at the time when Jackie was trying to sell me. We were sitting in, I think, at the boardroom of PSR one day, and he's like, it's a really difficult, I'm not going to do my Jackie impression, it's a really difficult sell. A Scotsman called Frankiti, how does, I mean, how am I supposed to sell that? I mean, really, if, I'm, I'm, I'm going to rename you. Ah, that's it. Jock McBain. I'm going to rename you Jock McBain. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, really? And he's he's told everybody that story forever. That's brilliant. And I, yeah, so I nearly was, I was going to have to change my name. Was it, was, was he, was it an element of seriousness about him? Was a, there was an element of frustration yeah. in, in what he was trying to do. Um, yeah, with Jackie, you never know because he might have actually thought it was a good idea. <laughs> you might have done it. So, but it's, you know, you mentioned your your dad remortgaging the house. Um, was it that kind of that time in your career? Were you were you already thinking about this is this is my life? This is what I want to do, or was it still this is great fun? Let's see what happens. No, it's, I wanted to do that. I was very serious about racing and wanted to, to I wanted to do F1 at that point from a very young age but when you're sort of 10 years old you think oh, I want to do F1 yeah. you have no idea the difficulty, the complexity all the stuff involved um, when I went to Vauxhall Junior I yeah, by that point I was all in I didn't have any other um, avenues, I didn't sort of hedge my bets in any way you know, I, I, I got um, grades at school that probably would have got me into university to do something but I was yeah. not interested in anything else at all really just no interest um, ask any of my teachers I'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> what's um, if you weren't a racing driver would you you always would have been involved in motorsport do you think I'd like to think I would have been involved in motorsport or cars yeah. in some way I'm not sure what, what it would have looked like um, you know you see people guys I raced against who were very talented and maybe didn't get the opportunities um, and you see the the, the the jobs they've made Ed's overtaking a learner here by the way sorry there we go. And, and he is below the speed limit yeah, um, still am as well <laughs> he Look is that. very impressive <laughs> um, so I, I don't know what it would have looked like I think now when I you know I love old cars and I love I'd love to have had the ability to restore a car yeah. You know, to really get into it and understand that and when I retired I thought oh, I'm going to be able to go and hang out with some friends of mine and and um, get to teach me how to do stuff on cars but then I've had now I'm busier than I ever was so that, that's not happened and I think when you're involved in racing at a high level you learn about details and Jackie always used to drill that into us it's attention to details attention and you were all go yeah yeah Jackie <laughs> oh yeah sure okay yeah. Mm-hmm. but it is and it was, and it, and that I think goes into all all walks of life, all walks of life, yeah. all facets of life. I mean, I look at a car now, I, I look at the, the the tiniest detail of it, and that goes way way back to what Jackie taught me, and to pretty much every person I've worked with since since those days. Yeah, it's all. I'd say I, I've got a sort of you know, there's loads of advice that your parents give you when you're young, and you know when you first pass your driving test and all that stuff, and you don't really listen at the time. 
but actually when he gets down to it 20 years later you think oh, oh yeah they were they were right weren't they i suppose it's a sort of similar thing with jackie you know you all this advice that at the time you might not have realized how good advice it was yeah my, my dad's never been a great one to give advice he's not he was not one of oh you need to do this or you should do this or well you know he, he kind of let me get on with it and supported me a hundred percent but he, he sort of he after carting he just he handed really? me over to to, to David and, and Father David Leslie, yeah. and then obviously to Jackie, and, and, and from that point on, he was never a racing dad. He just he would come to the events and enjoy them. Yeah, and that's the right way to do it. Yeah, you know? I always <laughs> said that him and Alan Weber should write a book that should be you know <laughs> required reading for all racing dads, yeah, so exactly. they don't become complete arseholes basically. Yeah. Um, just let let your kids <laughs> get on with it and it. support them. But yeah. you know you can't you can't sort of. Um, live your dreams through your kids I would say right. so the um, it, was, it was around at that time because you were earning extra money by uh, being an instructor around the country and I seem to remember you, in, a, in a few somewhere you basically describing it as actually not a very nice experience because usually you're in a car with a complete wally I think was your exact word I'm not sure Wally so, is the word so reading that before this <laughs> so but that must have been quite an experience instructing people who usually think they're a lot better than they actually are yeah in, instructing was was an interesting time um, but it's a way it was a way for me and other drivers like me to to earn a living I mean yeah. how else do you do it you can't have a proper job because you've got to go testing and you've got to go to the gym and you've got to do all this stuff so that was you know we had Jim Russell John Kirkpatrick and the guys at Jim Russell used to give us sort of regular work um you know, it was guys like Kevin McGarrity, Alex Deaton, all these guys that I got to work with at Jim Russell. Uh, it was actually Donington on Monday and driving in. Was, it's so different now than it was um, back then with, with the Jim Russell days. And, yeah. um, you know, we did manufacturer days, all this all this type of thing. Um, the first thing I did when I got my yeah, Mercedes contract was um, stop instructing. Really? I found it <laughs> absolutely terrifying. I, now, it's the last, last person I picked up um, in Goodwood Carpool was Tiff and he's asked me to ask you <laughs> about a particular experience you had with him driving a van was it? Shall I show you the scar? <laughs> what, what, have you seriously got a scar yeah, from it? Shoulder. I've got a scar of... Oh my god that's from Tiff? That was... Actually... What the, were you doing? Around the boat way it was Tiff. Um, uh, we were working for a Japanese manufacturer that wasn't Honda or Lexus. Right. Uh, at Donington again. Donington's featuring prominently today. So I was at Donington doing this day, and at lunchtime you had to fuel the cars up. Well, I think it was Johnny Clues and I were playing around and leaning on the horn and just being generally teenagers. And Tiff took exception. Tiff was chief instructor, and he took exception to this. And he said, right, you two, it was like being at school again, you two, you're picking up cones at the end of the day. So we're going around and picking up the braking cone, the, the turning cone, the apex cone, the exit cone, and that's how you marked out the track. Yeah. So we get up to um, Coppice, and by this point there's quite a load of cones in the van, and we're seeing how fast we can go. Oh my. And I'm hanging out, hanging onto the handle, the grab handle on the side door of this van, there's a sliding door. And when I got to Coppice, he lent it in there pretty hard. And as we got to the exit cone, all the cones pushed me out of the van, and I went smashing down the road. Oh! And um, so I just got to let this guy pass. He, he needs all the help he can get. Look at him go! I'll go on. He's on the tank. Yeah. 
Sorry. And um, yeah, so I, that's what I did. I did. Yeah. I, I did that. It's, I, I gave my face good road rash, and I, I actually had to race the, that the, the weekend at Pembrey with with Paul Stewart Racing, and um, I showed up at the at HQ Milton Keynes the next morning to get in the, um, the team van to drive down and I kind of got out and I couldn't move my right arm and my face was all scabbing up. So Hans, so, so your worst injury instructing, after saying you were instructing some pretty interesting people, was was from TIFF. It wasn't from any of the people that... It was that... pretty much from TIFF, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, you haven't had a completely unblemished copybook on truck driving though. So I think I read somewhere that you you were delivering new cars or something, you got paid a certain amount and you suddenly got a call to go and meet King Hussein of Jordan. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. What, <laughs> what on earth was that about? One of my first sponsors is a great guy called Ian Dewar and Ian had a Toyota and Mazda dealer in Edinburgh. And I was doing Vauxhall Junior, but no... Vauxhall dealerships would, would sponsor me and Ian said, yeah, I'll give you some money. So he loved the fact that my Vauxhall Junior that won the championship had a Mazda and a Toyota logo on the side. <laughs> uh, so part of the deal was I worked with him during the week. I would yeah. go and I would clean cars, I would drive new cars up and down the country and I, there was also a two-car transporter that I would drive and I would go go to a test and I'd drive this, literally drive this seven and a half ton transport down the road park up at a test flat round for the day and head home or head to the next place I was yeah. dropping cars so that was how, how I did it and we I got a phone call from Jackie saying you need to be in Milton Keynes on um, whatever Wednesday and I need you here at nine o'clock and I couldn't afford a hotel room so I went to Ian, I said, Ian, I need to be in um, Milton Keynes Wednesday morning, nine o'clock. He said, good, I've got a 323 Mazda needs picked up and I've got a whatever needs picked up there. So I went, drove the car, you know, the truck back to mum and dad's house, left it there overnight, got up at like three in the morning and put on my posture racing team gear because we were sponsored by Boss. Typical Jackie, everything was done perfectly. And I got this on and I'm rocking down the M6 eventually, two cars on board, and well, I fell asleep. And I woke up and I was straddling the barrier of the M6. Oh, and I was like, oh, Lord, oh, God. So I managed to pull the truck off the barrier somehow, pulled over. I changed the right front tyre because I'd blown the tyre out on the barrier. Changed the right front tyre of the seven and a half ton truck on my own. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so then I put the, rather than put the, the, the tyre back up on the, the mechanism, stuck it in the passenger seat, and I rocked on down to Milton Keynes. Dirty hands, the whole thing. So I got there, parked the truck round the corner, went in. By the, the, the sort of the side entry, Paul Stewart racing, washed my hands, scrubbed them, washed everything, and then went and met King Hussein. He was a lovely man. <laughs> he must have wondered why, what you've been doing. <laughs> Bags under your eyes. Yeah. Break dust everywhere. You'd be exactly right. The, the life of a, a young driver, but you, you but, had to do these things. Yeah. But the, the things sort of really changed when you got the call from Mercedes, didn't they? Because that was that was your first properly paid job but you, did, you didn't believe it to start with did you? No the uh, so I was doing Formula 3 it wasn't going yeah. very well I won the first race I thought yes, this, this is easy. this is it <laughs> and then Jan won every other race I think Jan Magnussen was my teammate Jan was, was very very talented um, but you beaten him in Formula Vauxhall beaten him in Vauxhall yeah. in karting he was very good but again yeah. his, his stature was such that, that 
it, it really helped all that and maybe that's actually a driver excuse <laughs> but he you know he just wiped the floor with me years later the, 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 the engineer said oh yeah well you weighed 10 kilos more and that's X amount of lap nobody told me that at the time so I just kept driving harder and harder yeah. to try and make up for it and ended up overdriving the car I wasn't happy Mercedes towards the end of the season um, had called the guys at Autosport Peter Fubister Andy Holbrook Lawrence Foster and said right Klaus Ludwig's leaving going to Opel we need um, we need you to give us some young drivers and names of guys we should test and they said Oliver Gavin and myself and I was going up to Nutsford I think on the train and my phone rang and it was an odd number so I answered it and the woman's like hello so and so from Mercedes Norbert Haug's office and of course I knew who Norbert Haug was and I'm thinking yeah yeah which one of my <laughs> friends is this please take the number down from Mr Haug he wishes to speak to you yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, four nine. So you must have thought that you were the most nonchalant <laughs> young <laughs> exactly. driver. Yeah, yeah. I've been expecting this call. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one seven two. Blah blah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll call him. Thank you. Got on the rest of the train journey. And I thought, okay, who's going to call back in a minute? Well, nobody called back to tell me how funny it was. And I got to Nutsford, got off the train, and I think somebody called. To, have you called Norbert yet? Oh God! Oh, <laughs> ah, what's his number? <laughs> so I called him, and um, they said we would like you to call a man called Gerhard Ungar. He's going to tell you where to be and all that if you can do it. So I, went, I phoned Jackie. I said, Jackie, this is, I've got this opportunity to test. Can I do it? He said, Yeah, yeah, go and do it. And so I went and did it, and it went well. And they invited me back. This was pre Macau. The season was over. This was pre Macau. They invited me to do this test. It went well. They invited me back because it was raining. Um, and I show up for the next test and Jan's there. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go out and it was, again, it went well, but I think I was three hundredths of a second slower over a lap. And I was just like, ah, you exactly oh, where I made yeah. a mistake. I can still remember it to this day. But I got on very well with, with Gerhard and with Bernd Schneider. Again, it's that thing of somebody just maybe a connection and seeing something. Gerhard was a, you know, really would like you in the team. But they did it very signed Fisichella. Jan was a McLaren young driver, and so there was no space for me. So anyway, then Fisichella upset them, and so I, I got this phone call in January from Gerhard saying, "Have you done the deal with 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 Jackie?" And I said, "Well, no, I actually haven't yet, but we've agreed." we've agreed terms and he said well there's a space for you in the team if you want and I'm looking at my sort of mounting deck doing Formula 3 yeah. and I wasn't happy with what had happened the year before and Mercedes were offering to pay me what at the time was an absolute seemed a fortune yeah. was a fortune to me and I kind of one of those things you regret and I went over there and I pretty much signed the contract without sort of talking to Jackie about it and then phoned Jackie actually went in and saw Paul and um, said I'm, I'm leaving I'm going to Mercedes and it, with the hinds with hindsight and with the maturity and I really regret the way I did that yeah. um, and I've told Jackie that and told Paul and I should have after everything they did I should have been more uh, yeah it's about up front but it, it, it was, it, it, I mean obviously I think you took a bit of time to sort of get over it but it's, it was all fine 
was all fine in the end. Well, I saw him at Donington four months later, and he was great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't. As I sit back now and look at things like that, I, yeah, I, I didn't do a great job yeah. of that. But um, it was a great opportunity, and um, and I destroyed the uh, the test car into a million bits and yeah. nearly got fired before the first race. <laughs> and what was the biggest bit that was left after that crash? Um, was it there was a door panel or something like that that was about it? I have a quarter, uh, <laughs> I have a quarter of a carbon door in my, my office at home, and that was where all the test team signed it. Because, I mean, it literally it ripped the V, the trumpets out of the V of the engine. It was monstrous. monstrous. What were you doing? Well, it, it was. <laughs> I was going through a flat-out chicane, and the car was had a, an, an aero oversteer, which I told them. But what I should have done was then slowed it down. But no, I was right. maximum attack racing again. driver, young, <laughs> young racing driver. <laughs> and so yeah, end over ended it and and destroyed it anyway. I nearly got fired. Uh, luckily, put it on pole for the first race. So all was forgiven. Yeah. But you did so going from Formula Three though to the to the um, to that car. I mean, it was about 500 horsepower or something? 500, yeah. With no, well, it was downforce, but it was so different to the Formula cars you'd done before. Was it not a massive shock to the system getting in that? It was heavier. Uh, and it had reasonable downforce, but compared to Formula 3 car, yeah, it was, it was yeah. a big difference. What In qualifying trim, it was actually quite similar. Right. The low fuel and everything. It was really an agile thing. ABS took a bit of getting used to. The traction control, getting the most out of it, and then learning all the systems in the car took a bit of getting used yeah. to. Because there were a lot of systems right now. Oh my god, yeah. But in race trim is where I, I struggled to start with, and right. looking after the tyres because it only had nine inch wide rear tyres. So you had to be very, very careful with the tyre life. But I, 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 everything was based on distance in that car. Yeah. It was done on a. And because of the ABS, there wasn't any lock ups. So you could put a distance, so you'd break for a corner, the aero would move. Anti-roll bars would change. The, at one point, we got to the, <laughs> the centre of gravity of the car. We had a movable weight that would change really? that as well. It was massively complicated and um, so much fun. I loved that period of, of um, my my career. I loved everything about it. Yeah. It was so much fun. Well, you, <laughs> you know, when you when you talk about the, how advanced the car was now. It's not really a surprise that it all it all kind of came to an end, is it? In terms of, in terms of cost. Yeah, yeah, but they were a little expensive. <laughs> yeah, they were just, they were a little the, expensive. The budgets. I think the budgets now would probably make a uh, an LMP1 team uh, think twice to give you an really? idea. Yeah, the, really the, the numbers minor. quoted were huge, but it's got the imagination of, yeah. of, of, of fans. And you got Hockenheim, and the whole stadium was rammed. Really? They, could, they they couldn't fill it even with Vettel. Leading a world championship at the moment. No. Um, so, but you then you then went on to go and, and obviously with that you had power steering and all that, and then you went to go and test a champ car with obviously no power steering and even almost double the power to that. Mm. Um, again, just a slight glutton for punishment. Where you like no easy sort of working your way in. No, I well I tested the Formula One car, the McLaren in yeah. the well, end of well it must have been December because it was Autosport Awards. December two, 1995, I tested the McLaren, and that went well. That was fun. It was the ugly one with the mid-wing, but it yeah. was a Formula One car, and it was a McLaren, and it had an Albert on the side, and it, it was just yeah. mega. Epic. It was like, okay, finally, wow. And then, the end of 96, the, as you said, the DTM ITC fell to bits and because of costs. I didn't know what I was going to do. 
the AMG, which was at the time was still owned by mostly by Mr. Arfrak, was they were looking at building a GT car, the CLK right. GTR. I didn't really know this, but I Jan had come back, Jan Magnussen had come back from doing a couple of IndyCar races and gone, oh my god, you've got to do this, it's so much fun. <laughs> so I then went and I, I was at the end of season dinner and I sat next to Paul Morgan, who was the nicest guy. He was just, you know, genius and had all the reason in the world to be sort of have a massive ego and he had none. Yeah. And I sat with him, he said, oh, what do you want to do next year? I said, I'd love to go to America, Paul. And I just think everything about it would be, would be fun. He said, hmm, let me see what I can do. Well, that's very nice. He phoned me in the January and he said, right, here's the deal. He said, a guy called Carl Hogan's going to call you and you're going to go test for him. And if the test goes well, then you've got the job. Uh, I've spoken to Norbert. We're going to, Mercedes is going to help with the engines. And off you go. So I went to Homestead, Homestead Road Course. Yeah. And <laughs> I couldn't hope, when I took a hand off the wheel to pull the sequential lever, the car would wander all over the road because I couldn't physically hold it in a straight line. I was built for a DTM car, I was 62 kilos at the time, I'm 75 now. I was just, Blimey. I was like, oh my word, I better get in the gym. So the test went well, surprisingly yeah. I was able to go quickly whilst hanging on for dear life and, um, and I got the job. But your, you were still, your, your mind was still slightly set on F1, wasn't it, at that stage? Well, or was mind. it already, you kind of already made the conscious decision to, right, let's, let's go to America? Because you, you, your McLaren test, because you were offered a testing contract with, with McLaren. Well, I'd gone, I, I felt that it was almost like my face didn't fit in Formula One or something, or, I don't know, it just, it, it never came together. And I went, did this, took advantage of this amazing opportunity I was presented. And I was over in the States and I get this phone call from Norbert saying, okay, you need to be at Woking on Tuesday. Ron wants to see you. I said, what? He said, yeah, I'll be there. I said, what, well, can I bring my manager? And they said, no. <laughs> oh. So I went to the old Albert Drive address mm. and I went into this meeting with Ron and, and Norbert and they, I was offered the deal. So I've still got the contract at home. It's like that. I'm surprised you've got room in your house for it. Yeah, it's a big old thing. <laughs> And I, it, the deal was, it was something like a nine year or seven year deal. They could get rid of me at any moment, but I was tied to them. I would be the test driver, and right. that was when they were testing three days a week. Yeah. I'd be test driver, and I would, they would pay towards the budget of my IndyCar program. Blimey, right. But I would go back and forward between the two, and I just never, never felt comfortable with it, so I didn't do it. Really? Which was a bit of a shock to Norbert I, and, and Ron, to I, be honest. I wonder how many people had said no to them before. Yeah, I probably not. You probably count them on a hand, can you? Yeah, I, I have to say that was probably the end of my relationship with Norbert, unfortunately. Really? And he'd done a lot for me. Yeah. And that was, he just never was the same. And, just, and then when I went to Honda at the end of that season, it really was the end. But he, yeah, he didn't, he didn't appreciate that. And Ron, the first time I spoke to Ron was at the uh, Festival of Speed Banquet this year. It was the first time I'd spoken to really? him since then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So was he was he okay about it? Now he never mentioned it. Oh really? Never right, mentioned okay. it. So I, I, I <laughs> didn't very, think you would. No, but a very polite conversation. <laughs> yeah. And but that was that was that was my chance at uh, before obviously before the Jaguar test. Yeah. And how what were ovals like the first time you went on one of those? Because they are. <laughs> they, I, I seem to remember you saying some of that. I mean, it's just how different they are. And then you had the sort of oval specialists. And well. 
considering at the time the cars had a thousand horsepower, give or take. Yeah. And the first oval I did was Homestead. At the time it was a mini India. It had four separate corners and no banking. So it was my now my I've got the deal. My first test on an oval's come up. We've gone there, and I think everybody. I think it was spring training, if I'm right. So I stand there on the pit wall, and Gilles de Fern goes past, and I thought, hmm, okay. And he went past the next lap, and I thought, is that it? I could do this. <laughs> he was running in the brakes, wasn't he? He went past the first time at full noise, and I almost lost my lunch. <laughs> I thought, oh God, what have I done? And, oh no. <laughs> then I, I went out, and I, I've always on the road courses was always a right foot breaker. Yeah. Apart from a very expensive two-month period in 2012, but I was right foot braking on the oval, and Carl Hogan called Rick Mears, and um, and Rick came over and helped me understand what I was doing wrong on the oval. Yeah, and that was it. And I qualified, I think, ninth in my first race next to Michael Andretti. Got to meet Paul Newman and Mario Andretti on the grid, which kind of knocked, excellent knocked my focus just a touch, <laughs> and I crashed. Into the, in the race Gilles was leading and I did that fatal mistake of moving over to let the leader through and got in the marbles and, and then, then you're in and then it hurt Is, uh, you've I mean you've had some big ones haven't you mm. and you've had sort of well obviously the, the career ending chant but before then you, you I mean you've also had before the was it before the Jaguar test when you were still I mean you were still kind of recovering from a head injury but you probably at the, that time didn't know it maybe yes that was a crap time I mean Greg died in the October and in 99 and so Barry Green was, was, was absolutely fantastic was my boss at the time yeah and Barry said look just go go home come back when you're ready so I literally didn't come back till spring training the next March I just needed to get away and I came back and I was going around hope homestead again and I turned in the end of the day I, I, apparently it was about five to five and the spindle broke as I turned in and the car swapped ends and I went up into the wall and I fractured my pelvis but I knocked my head I actually missed the he the head surrounding my head hit the wall I've got the helmet at home it's got quite a gouge out of it and I didn't realize at the time I mean, I'd had obviously a very bad concussion but it took yeah. me probably two plus years to to get over that one and I was never really my I don't I don't ever feel my I felt the same since. Yeah. Um, but that's not you, been dramatic. But you do. You said you sort of got more serious after that. Yeah. I, I, yes. I, I felt a lot more. And I said to Marino, and he said, "Well, I never noticed, son." But <laughs> on, on the inside, it felt yeah. different. Um, so then, you know, I did that Jaguar test, and I had some issues with my neck because I, some. That accident did some damage to my sort of upper neck, the discs and stuff. Yeah. So I struggled. I couldn't train my neck to be able to, to sort of deal with it. I couldn't focus. I could focus for two or three laps. Yeah. But anything more than that, I just would, would yeah. struggle. And so I, the, the, the whole the Jaguar test happened, and I, I, it was it was all wrong. I was learning something new, which I couldn't do because of the, the I guess because of the damage I'd done to to my brain. I was struggling with that. You know, they, they they didn't really want me there either. I got, I got that. Pressure. You got yeah, but you also because on the first day you were sort of working up to a time or working down to a time. You mm. Only I work up to a time when I go racing. <laughs> I um, don't know, I do too. <laughs> and but then the second day, didn't you arrive and someone else's name was on the car and you got given a? It was a different car. Yeah, there was some stuff. That, I guess 
there'd been a crash the day before with the other car, something had broken. So they'd swapped the cars and I got the, I think it was the display car. It's one of those things, with benefit of hindsight, and do I look and say, oh, it was just that I wasn't sort of up to it at the time, or was, I always felt that it was, they didn't want me there, so what was the spec of the car, how much fuel was in the thing, I just, yeah. you just never know, yeah. I don't want to sort of, say, oh, I don't want to be one of those guys, but I got back in the, 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 the Indy car about three weeks later, and I broke a lap record at Road America, which I think still stands, yeah. so the, 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 the pace was, I could still drive a car fast, yeah. so I, I, don't, I just don't, I, I don't quite know, but there is a history of, of guys coming over from indie cars and already came over and got on those grooved, horrible grooved tires. Yeah. And looking like a camel on ice skates, you know, it was just. <laughs> and I, you know, I, 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 those tires in indie car that give you all the feedback in the world, you knew exactly yeah. what was going on with the car at all times. Whereas those tires, the the, the, the F1 groove tire, they were horrible. Yeah. No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to sort of dwell on it for too long. But I, I watched the Ferrari film, the Hawthorne and Collins film last mm. night, and the sort of 57, 58 seasons when they lost so many people. And there's a there's a quote at the start of the film where you know on Sunday night you've lost someone in the race, and then that's it. You you want to give up, never want to do it again. Come Monday, you think, well, you know, maybe I should give it a go. And mm-hmm. then Tuesday, you think, right, well, I should probably get get sorted because I need to fly out tomorrow. And that was a sort of mentality of a racing driver, um, and it just struck me when I was sort of looking through your career, and you know, with Greg and Dan, and you know, it's it's a really dangerous sport. What what is it that keeps you going? Because there's obviously the most the wonderful side of winning the 500s, winning the IndyCar Championship. But where you know, how does that? Yeah, when when Greg died, I mean, to me, everything changed when Greg died because it, before that, it was just a lark, wasn't it? It was just yeah. it was a job. It was a job, but it wasn't a job, and it was fun, and it was just. It was life was was great. Then all of a sudden, Greg dies, and it's like oh, and I didn't want to do it anymore. I really yeah. I sat and I thought about it, and hence the fact it took me so long to decide to actually get back in the car. And I just thought, yeah. do I really need this? Do I? I, I needed it because I didn't know anything else to do. But yeah, and I sat and eventually I said, yeah, I, I want to do this. And I, then I got back in the car and had that huge accident. <laughs> That was hard. Yeah, life trying to tell you something. Yeah, and yeah. It was, that was battling through that. Yeah. Oh, crikey, okay. And then when, when Dan died, it was, it was slightly different. And I felt, by that point, I almost felt... I got back in the car when Dan died two weeks later. They wanted me to get in two days later, but luckily, yeah. luckily common sense prevailed. But um, when Dan died, it was I felt a responsibility because he'd been testing that DW12 yeah. and done all the development on it. And then the, Tony and I were going to run it at Indy to start that process and I just I felt even by that point I was one of the sort of the the, the elder statesmen more experienced drivers and I felt a responsibility to go out and to keep things going yeah. and to keep this you know keep the to get back in the car and they, describe it you know as, as an active driver you just you, you kind of you want more and more you just yeah. yeah I'll do it you know nothing everything's a, a smaller distraction as I sit back now being retired I think what what were you doing but then that desire to do it and that those the feelings I got from it or I would I would take the risk and yeah um, it, I don't want that to sound flippant because it's not but that first Indy 500 win in 2007 because you I mean you've always even before you raced there you loved the place because of Jim Clark and what he achieved and all the history and 
everything, but to get that first win must have been just. Is, oh, you still say that's probably the, one of the. Obviously, there's so many highlights, but is that still one of the things in your career? You think, yes, that was that was something. Yeah, I think any of the indie wins were special. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking at this road here. I drove the Harrods McLaren up this road. <laughs> I, I will try and get one of those for next time. <laughs> it's a little, little noisy. You might have to have the intercoms on. Um, it's you know any of those indie wins were special for different reasons. Uh, the, the I think the most emotional one was the 2012 because it was the it was the first 500 since Dan died and, yeah. and that race really was a, <clears throat> was fantastic. It was a celebration of, of Dan. Yeah. You know lap 98, lap 26, the whole everybody put white glasses on in the grandstands. They were paper white glasses if you didn't have white. That was that was cool. But the, the first win was a surprise because I, I really didn't think it would ever happen. Um, and it was it was an odd race because it, they'd stopped it. We'd gone away, and I thought the Tony was leading when they stopped, and I thought Tony would win. Um, and then they restarted at a puncture, uh, and so I had to pit. And that put me off sequence from Tony. Yeah. And really, there was only there was only two guys quick enough that day. I think Tony and myself that we were we were the, the I think equally quick on that occasion. But the rain came when I was leading, and yeah. the rain came could have come equally when Tony was leading, and he would have been a deserving winner. And but we our cars we were both at Andretti at the time. The cars were flying, and him and I had sort of and our engineers had nailed the setup maybe better than the. The other guys. Yeah. When did, when in your career did you think I, I've made it now? I'm a I'm a obviously you're a proper racing driver from you know the kind of the day that you start. Um, don't know whether this car looks particularly intimidating or not, but people are tended to just pull off the road as we go behind them. Um, was there a particular was there a time in your life when you thought I'm a pro? You know, is it after your, was it after 2007 the championship and the Indy 500? Or there was a mindset shift. After after 07, after winning the 500, yeah, up until that point, I'd, I'd won quite a few races, but I'd never won a 500, I'd never won a championship. Yeah. I'd drawn on points with Montoya, whatever you call that, he won the championship, deservedly so. But finally, I'd, I'd sort of achieved one of those big milestones in IndyCar racing, and I thought, it's like pressure went away. Yeah. And so there was a slight shift there, and I thought, yep, yeah, okay, I've achieved something now. And then I went and did NASCAR. And it wasn't very nice. <laughs> and, and I came back, and then I was when I came back to IndyCar with the, with the Ganassi team, I had a completely different mindset. I was like a just a dog with a bone. I just wanted to win every race. Every not, there was nothing was enough. Do you know what I mean? I was completely just focused on on and I, the sort of maybe the slightly softer side of my personality went away, <laughs> and I just did whatever I had to do and work as hard as I had to do. And would just, you know, I guess in some ways became not as nice a person or whatever. But I was there to win, yeah. and that was a. I noticed that change in myself. What? Talk me through the NASCAR decision because <laughs> you tested a NASCAR. No, I didn't. <laughs> you didn't even test no. one. I thought you did, but you you literally went out, and it must have been so different so, to the Indy cars. And you you were you were Indy car champion. Indy 500 winner, and you thought, you know what, I'm going to go and drive an Ascar. Yeah, right. <laughs> so what had happened, people said it was because of the accidents at Michigan 
and Kentucky within six days of each other when I went up in the yeah. air and did all those big things. It was nothing to do with that. Chip and I had been talking way before that. Chip and I, in 2006, we were in the basically the point of signing the contract and Montoya phoned Chip when he got fired by McLaren. And, and Chip phoned me and said, look, man, I know we had this deal for you to go NASCAR racing, but Montoya and or my relationship with him, I said, yeah, fine, Chip. And then we went home won the championship in the 500 next year anyway so we kind of <laughs> got my revenge but I'd been talking about it I'd never been to a race and again Chip came back at me in 07 about wanting to do it because Monty had done okay so I thought yeah I've kind of I've won the 500 now I need more motivation I'm sort of feeling it's falling off a bit um, so I'll um I'm going to do NASCAR. So I signed a deal with Chip and there was all kinds of issues with Andretti letting me go. I'd been there for 10 years and they wanted to hold me to ransom for a month, leaving a month right. early from the contract. Um, we talked about Jackie when I left Paul Stewart Racing and how I should have done it differently. When I left Hogan, actually a similar situation. So I said, I'm, you know, I realised I'm going to do it differently this time. So I went to Michael and the other, the other two owners and said, I'm leaving. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to NASCAR. Was, did they smile when you said that? Well, they said, they, they, at first they said, thanks for everything you've done. We really appreciate it. You know, we understand. Who are you driving for? I said, Chip. And the attitude changed like really? that. And then it became very sort of nasty for a little while. But then they, they thought I was going to give away the sort of the, the secrets. And I didn't. I refused to give away any information about what we did yeah. in an IndyCar because they'd worked very hard for that sort of that information and it didn't seem right so um, so <laughs> I hadn't been to a race I'd never been to a race I'd what? never been to a NASCAR race oh my goodness I'd never what were you driven thinking? a I know <laughs> and I went out at Talladega with finally finally I got to go, go to the workshop and get fitted do you get fitted to a NASCAR? yeah oh yeah it's that all, sounds a bit if you're doing it right advanced. it's got all these <laughs> yeah, the Hendrick guys make these beautiful kind of survival cells right which you then have a, a, a seat as you would have a bead seat like you would have in an Indy car yeah. got in it went to Talladega didn't know how to start the car up didn't know how to back up to get out didn't know how to reach the track the guy at the start of the track asked me if I spoke English <laughs> and I left the pits it was a restrictor plate Arca car with a steering wheel bigger than this a steering wheel yeah. like that and I just accelerated out of the pit and thought I remember it was clear as day what have I done and I put a brave face on it, but yeah. I was didn't understand how to drive a car. I was going to it would take me years to learn, and the cars were, I was driving weren't very good. I was out of my depth. I got better at it. Got you had some, you, you know, you had some high points. Yeah, it, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't all doom and gloom. No, I mean, in, in the nationwide car, I managed to qualify on the pole at Watkins Glen. I, I didn't qualify at Sonoma on a road course in the Cup car. What were you doing? They Wishing did, you were in an in, in yeah, IndyCar. Yeah, exactly. Well, they put, it, they put it all down to me, and then the next week I qualified on the pole and the, 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 the nationwide car, and that kind of changed their attitude yeah. a little bit. But I didn't get a thrill from driving the car. Yeah. And so I was sort of looking around, trying to see if I could stay in NASCAR. I didn't want to go back to IndyCar because I kind of, I guess my pride or whatever. I went to Detroit to watch Marino driving the sports car, and they were racing the same weekend as IndyCar and I watched her I remember watching Dixon go through turn one and two at Detroit and I went oh god 
and I, there was like that moment of okay, just stop lying to yourself. You, you miss driving yeah. an Indy car, and then it was like, how am I going to get back in a competitive Indy car? Yeah, it's it must have been. I mean, do, do you see that year as a wasted year, or yeah. it, was it actually it was a really well? It certainly makes for quite a funny story <laughs> at, the very, at the very least. But um, you, I mean, you must have learned some things doing such a different discipline. You know, it's one of those things that, what do they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Absolutely, because I went from being the current Indy 500 winner and champion to people basically laughing at me. And I didn't understand the way the car handled, I didn't like the way the car handled, and I learned to drive around it. So I learned, I definitely, it was a good uh, exercise in humility, but I learned how to drive a car out with my comfort zone. And so when I went back to IndyCar, I had the motivation to do it, but I also had, I felt more ability to, to drive around a, an ill-handling car. And um, so it was, and I met some lovely people, really good yeah. people, and it was not a wasted year. Um, it cost me a few quid because I bought an airplane to go to the races, right as the uh, economy did one of those. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you about Zanardi. Because he was such a talent in IndyCars. Um, what was he like to sort of to race against? What was because he even now he's talented and what he's achieved in um, the Paralympics is just extraordinary. Was he always a really, really tenacious competitor? We're clearing this way. Thank you very much. Zanardi. Oh God. <laughs> he was a pain in the arse to race against. <laughs> no, he, he just. I've said it before. He never knew when he was beaten. Long Beach was a lap ahead. Hurst and I, a lap ahead. We're about to lap him. And he came back and won the race. Really? Um, years later, we were sitting at a Target event, and he asked me, he said, oh, I have a question. Well, here we go. Because it was an RD, you never know which way it's going to go. Yeah. And he said, in Long Beach in 1998, when I came up to pass you, did you have any mirrors? I said, no, funnily you mentioned that, no, because the glass had fallen out of both mirrors, so I couldn't see you coming. He goes, oh, I thought you made it very easy for me to pass. <laughs> uh, he, he's one of those rare people that just, again, he doesn't, doesn't understand no, doesn't understand yeah. can. And you know, he went to Formula One with that Williams with those horrible tyres, and that's what, it, I mean, he, he struggled mightily because of the feeling and all that. Um, I mean, Ralph Schumacher beat him, for God's sake. Yeah. What does that tell you? Um, but just, yeah. And then uh, when he had his accident in Germany, we, we went up to the um, to the hospital in Berlin. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, if he could just survive, if he could just get get through this first bit, you know, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was, I guess, it was. It's amazing. He's he's such an incredible kind of force of nature to do what he's done. It's a great storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> he's the best storyteller. <laughs> he is. He he. When he goes into something, he goes in just a hundred percent. And you look at him now. You look at the build and everything that he's done. And yeah. The fact he's you know he's over fifty. But he's I know, it's sort of crazy and still winning gold medals. Oh my! But that's that's Zanardi. He's um, and the guys in, in, in the Ganassi team they love him. Yeah. Rightly, they absolutely, they, they still talk about it. I mean, him and Vassar were the, were the first of the champions, they were the first people. And when I started in IndyCar, 
uh, the first year I fired him off at Detroit and qualified on fifth and he qualified sixth I think and I fired him off in the tyres in the first lap and I thought uh oh I've just fired Zanardio he's going to kill me and I went up and I thought of course I'm so sorry and he's like don't worry we've all done it and I thought wow really yeah, that was very nice of you and he, he was the hardest guy to race against but he was to me, fair. he was fair, but to some guys, I'd see, I saw him do some stuff. I thought, Whoa, wow. <laughs> there, there's a particular type of driver that you've come across in your career who was just lovely outside of the car, but then get them into a car and they're just totally different and a complete. It was, it was Takuma Sato, one of them. Takuma is definitely that way. Takuma's yeah. he's such a nice guy out of the car. He's just yeah, and then you get him in the car and he's a nutter. <laughs> he's an absolute lunatic. Um, just in terms of aggression level as much as anything he's very talented yeah and you know everybody has a bit of that dual personality I think every driver has yeah. that sort of thing you know Montoya I, I loved racing against Montoya because you know Monty out of the car can be a bit of a dick <laughs> and he revels in it he loves it but in the car he would God, he would race you hard but never and all the time I raced against him, there was never a point I thought, "Man, Monty, that was a bit cheeky." Yeah. Um, whereas somebody like Elio, uh, I felt a lot of times with Elio, he went way beyond what was acceptable. Yeah. Who would you uh, just? I mean, you, there's so many names that kind of spring to mind: Paul Tracy, and um, who was your sort of toughest competitor? Who was it when you thought he's he's always there, or thereabouts? He's always challenging. He's always irritatingly kind of competitive everywhere he goes was there someone in particular that kind of I, there, I mean there were so many names I did it for such a long time <laughs> you know, when I first started I was always in awe of Greg's especially his oval talent because I think yeah. his car the, the package he had allowed him to show on the oval not necessarily on the road course um, Zanardi Montoya yeah. uh, Dan when he came over oh, he was he was good Bloody irritating at times, you know, being the being the kid. But he was, oh, he was on it. Marino likes to say that you know, as Marquez has changed the way people ride MotoGP bikes, Dan changed the way everybody drove ovals. And really? I think, I think Greg did, and then Dan did again. And what what was it that Dan did that was so different? Well, the regulations changed with the cars had less horsepower and more downforce. So all that meant was you could drive them more sideways. Really? Dan drove them more in your, and he would say stuff to me like, "I don't, I just, I don't believe you can spin them." I, like, uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, physics would yeah. say something yeah. a little different. But his confidence <laughs> level was so high, and um, but to me, the one guy, the one every week, he's there every week. Scott Dixon. Yeah. God, just blinding, and he gets, he just keeps doing it. He keeps doing it, even though. You know, he's, he's a family man, he's, he's got a few quid in the bank, he's still as determined as ever was. Yeah, it's um, it, it's the drivers who sort of keep going and have that hunger for so long. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always amazing to see. Well, we have now finally arrived at the circuit. I'm sorry about such a long roundabout route I've taken you on to the circuit. You don't really know where you're going, do you? Not really. <laughs> I've been guessing the entirety of my life, let alone on this journey. But here we go. That was fun. Yeah. Darren, thank you so yeah. much. Good Thanks, to see pal. you. You too. Yeah, yeah, see you soon. Yeah, we'll All catch right. you later. Yeah. Cheers. Have a good day at the circuit. I better remember my phone. <laughs>